Hi, I'm Matthew Allard from newshooter.com and you're listening to The Go Creative Show. Hey everyone, my name is Ben Consoli. I'm a director and owner of BC Media Productions. And this is The Go Creative Show, a podcast for filmmakers. So today we have Matthew Allard ACS on the show, and he's from newsshooter.com. And if any of you guys that have been listening to us for a while know, it's when Matt is on the show, it's because we have major gear announcements. Now, obviously, 2020 is a crazy year. There was no NAB, so it was kind of the year that never was for NAB. But camera manufacturers have continued to release brand new products. Um, and just yesterday was a huge announcement we've all been waiting for for the Sony a7S III. So there's a lot to talk about. The new Blackmagic 12K camera, Canon release cameras, Sony just had their big announcement. So there's been so much going on. Um, We also have a discussion about the Teradek Serve Pro update and how we can now do better remote production. So this is an episode for all you gear obsessed people. This is the one that we've been waiting for and I cannot wait to share it. And that's coming up in just a couple of minutes. But I have a couple of announcements. One, uh, we encourage you to follow us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, um, YouTube, all of it, so you can see and hear the show. And of course, subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app. Um, We also want to let you know that Open Reel is giving Go Creative Show listeners 10% off. And Open Reel is the software that I use to do remote production with iPhones. It's absolutely incredible, and you should check it out for yourself. 10% off at Open Reel by simply using our name, Go Creative Show, or my name, Ben Consoli. So easy as that. And of course, we want to thank our show's sponsors. Uh, we've got uh, MZ Education for Creatives and Post Lab, stress-free collaboration in Final Cut Pro and Premiere. And we'll be talking about those guys a little later in the show. But right now, let's dive in because there is so much to discuss about all the new gear that has come out in 2020. It's the year that never was for NAB, but it is happening right now with Matthew Allard, ACS from newshooter.com. So I'm here with Matt Allard, ACS from newsshooter.com, and we've got a lot to talk about, so we're going to jump right in. Matt, first of all, welcome back to the show. It's been a while. I can't remember the last time I was on. Maybe it was, did we do an IBC episode in 2019? Yeah, I think we did an IBC in 2019 and had plans to do an episode for NAB 2020, but no, (laughs) that did not happen. It may not be an NAB 2021 at this stage either. It's interesting to see what the manufacturers have done without having that NAB experience because it's been extraordinarily busy for you. I mean, just today, just an hour ago, Sony did the announcement for the A7S III, which we've all been waiting for forever. Um, So, I mean, how has life been for newshooter.com during COVID? It's been interesting. You would have thought that perhaps everything would have slowed down and manufacturers wouldn't be announcing anything because there hasn't been any trade shows to actually bring those products to and show. But in a lot of ways, it's it's almost been the opposite. Um, I think we've seen just as many products being announced, but they're now being announced in a completely different way. And in some regards, I think it's helped companies because they've been able to set up these live streams and um, and do a lot of online, more online marketing. 
and they haven't had to rush as much to actually meet a particular show deadline. So for something like NAB, you know, you have to rush things out to make that particular deadline. With no deadline in place and, you know, having virtual shows and being able to release something at any time, companies have been able to take their time and now release products when they feel they're sort of ready or there's a, a good time to release them. I mean, I'm not really sure whether in this particular environment, particularly in our industry, it's the best time to be releasing gear because a lot of people haven't been working and still now work is coming back very slowly. So people haven't had that sort of extra income or money that they would normally have to spend on on gear. So gear is probably one of the last things that people have been purchasing, but uh, given the amount of announcements that we've seen um, since COVID-19 took off, um, you would think that everything was was going about as per normal. Do you think that the camera man, the manufacturers are just figuring, we've got to release this stuff. Like we have to clear the decks for what our plans are for 2021. Or do you think that they actually feel that there is a good you know, model to release and sell products right now? That's a hard one to, to sort of work out. I, I mean, I guess companies are working years in advance with, with planning product releases and, and product development. And so they reach a stage where they're scheduled to release something and then they've got something else they're already working on for maybe two years, three years down the track. So I guess you can't really hold the technology back. Um, You know, you could delay it slightly. And I think we've seen a lot of these these, um, releases, probably even say the A7S III, um, being delayed in terms of when it was announced. But I mean, it's hard to, it's really hard to say as to, you know, whether they think it's a good opportunity to do it or not. I mean, I think it's been a real sort of almost litmus test for manufacturers having a look at different ways of how they now have to market things because traditionally a lot of it was done at these trade shows. And so everybody has now had to scramble to now make different arrangements and come up with different strategies for marketing, um, you know, whatever they're trying to sell. So it'll be interesting to see going forward what's going to happen to the traditional trade show. I mean, trade shows cost a lot of money for, for, um, attendees, people have to go there. But the thing is, most people go to trade shows to meet other people, to catch up with people they haven't seen for a long time and actually have hands-on with the equipment. I mean, there's only so much you can learn and see from watching something online. You really need to actually feel it, see it, talk to someone in person. You don't get that same experience over like a pre-recorded presentation for instance, where they're just going through the motions and telling you what the features of, of those actually are. So I still think there's still very much a place there for trade shows. Whether they're going to be reduced in size now and what's going to happen moving forward and whether we see actual companies pulling out altogether from doing trade shows, even if the whole COVID-19 um, situation improves, that's still an unknown. We could have we could have sort of reached a pinnacle or a, or a turning point here where the way companies are doing business and marketing products could change dramatically. Yeah. The expense of having a big, huge trade show booth may not be necessary anymore. I was thinking about that the other day too, because you're right. The hands-on experience is what you miss. But with all the saved money, is there ever a world where maybe they would encourage you to buy um, and you have like a grace period, like a longer return policy, like basically a, 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 like a um, a risk-free purchase where you're essentially renting it for a week before you commit. Like, I wonder if there's a world where that would exist because already, I mean, let's be honest, a lot of people buy stuff from B&H, use it for a shoot and then return it. Like that, 
that happens and that's gross, but it happens. And we certainly have the big camera, the um, camera rental houses and all that. Like, I wonder, do manufacturers start becoming rental houses in a way, allowing people to have the hands-on experience? I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of saved money by not going to trade shows. And what can you do with it? I, I think really, uh, particularly at the sort of mid to higher end, you really do need to have hands-on experience with, with something like that. If you're going to spend 50, 60, 70, $80,000 on a, on a camera package, you're not just going to go onto B&H and click buy without ever having touched or seen that camera. Yeah. That's a big investment. You wouldn't go and buy a $80,000 car without test driving it or, or going over it thoroughly. So I think at, at that level, I think there certainly is sort of, uh, I think there's already things in place at the moment where people can actually go and do that. Um, you know, if, if, if you're looking at an, an ARRI or a RED or something like that, for instance, you know, if you know the right people or have the right contacts, you can go in and have hands-on time with a with a camera or a product. At the lower end, I think it's a little bit more difficult. Um, I know Canon does it in certain places where they have stores and things where you can go in and actually just try out bits and pieces of equipment. And I think more manufacturers will probably start doing that. It's probably a little bit harder at that lower end because people are more likely just to go to B&H, as you said, and just click buy. And then, yeah. you know, if it's $1,000, $2,000, it's probably not the end of the world if they suddenly find out they don't really like that camera. As you said, some people will actually return it or they'll just sell it secondhand and, and buy something else. Yeah. So it's a crazy different world. And I'm interested to see what happens uh, with these trade shows, if they just end up being completely virtual or smaller or scaled down or what, who knows what's going to happen once the dust settles. But what we do know is that they are still, the camera manufacturers are still releasing stuff like crazy. And we should probably start talking about that because I know, especially now, the Sony a7S III is the thing everyone's going to be discussing for the next couple of weeks, probably a couple of months as we lead into release time. And it just was released about an hour ago. The announcement was released about an hour ago. So I know it's still fresh, but um, what can you tell us about this new camera that we've all been anxiously, anxiously waiting for? Yeah, I mean, the, the last iteration of the A7S series was the A7S II, and that was released back in September 2015. So you're looking at almost a five-year delay between the A7S II coming out and now the A7S III. That's a long time for Sony. Sony normally updates their, their models every sort of you know, 12 to 18 months. So this has been a long wait, and I think it got to the stage where a lot of people were wondering, is this camera actually ever going to come out? Yeah. And finally it has. Um, it's interesting because we've seen a lot of other camera announcements in this month where people have concentrated on big eye-catching specifications and, and pushing boundaries and probably giving things to people that they probably don't even need <laughs> at this stage. And Sony has sort of, um, you know, almost done the opposite. They've been pretty conservative here. I mean, the A7S III is a 4K-only camera, still uses a 12.2-megapixel sensor, which is the same size as the original A7S. So they've, they've tried to keep it the same in terms of having, um, you know, big pixel pitch so you can, it's very good in, in low light conditions. But very interesting to see that it's still sort of, you know, stuck at 4K where everyone else is talking about 6K, 8K, in Blackmagic's case, 12K. But mm. I think what Sony have done here is they've, they sort of haven't delivered a a Tesla with a ludicrous mode. I think they've delivered more of a solid, you know, maybe a Toyota Corolla or a Prius, a solid daily driver with features that most people are going to use 
on a daily basis. And in a lot of ways, that is probably more important to a lot of shooters out there. Everyone was complaining that the Sony mirrorless cameras didn't have the ability to shoot 4.2.2.10 bit internally and they were protecting their cinema lineup. Well, that's no longer the case anymore. The A7S 3 can do 4.2.2.10 bit in all modes across the board. So you can do 4K, 10-bit, 4.2.2, up to 60p. And you can also do 4.2.2.10 bit 4K at 120. Does the 4.2.2.10 bit internal only apply when you're using those new media cards, um, which are, I'm scrolling down on your website here, newshooter.com, the CF Express. Does it only work if you're using those cards or can it still work on the SD? No, it it depends on what you're trying to record. Um, some of the higher frame rates. This this camera has got three different versions of XAVC in there. So there's XAVCS, which is the familiar one that that everyone would uh, would know from the previous um, Alpha series cameras. Yeah. And then there's XAVCHS, and then there's also XAVCSI, which is an all intra. Um, codec, which is similar to sort of what you'd find in, say, the Panasonic S1H. So that is based on an H2, H.265 compression codec. So you can use that to record sort of at, um, I think it's around 200 megabits per second, but it'll offer you um, better quality. And I've completely forgotten what you asked me about. No, that's it. So <laughs> the, the, the XAVCSI, it says on your website, 600 megabits per second insta, in, intraframe. Um, yes, intraframe. I don't know what that means. What does that mean? Well, there's two different forms of recording normally. There's either long, the, the XAVCS is long gop recording, and then all, all frame or intra frame is basically sort of a, a different way of doing the compression where you can record it at a lot higher bit rate. So there's three okay. different versions in there. I've probably got confused because I've had specifications going through of my course. head <laughs> all day. No, you, there's you're three right. Different versions the recorded. XAVCHS, XAVCS, and the XAVCSI for 4K. And then HD, it's just the XAVCS and XAVCSI. Um, but then you have the the inclusion of this new media, and I'd like to hear your thoughts on that. It says here that this is the first camera to use it. Um, so, what is this CF Express Type A? Why is it better? Is it better? CF Express, I think, was originally announced um, early 2019 from memory, and. Everyone will be familiar probably with CF Express Type B cards. They're the ones that are found in um, a few of the cameras that are out there on the market now. But there's actually three different standards of CF Express cards. There's Type A, Type B, Type C. And it basically just refers to how many PCIe um, lanes that they have that they can use. So that that basically, they've got chips in them like a like a sort of like an NVMe um, hard drive so that they can work faster. So... The Type A is the smallest and the least quick card, but in saying that, it's got theoretical speeds of up to, I think it's 1,000 megabytes per second, I believe. So it's more than fast enough to to work inside the camera. And I think the reason Sony has probably gone with that instead of going with CF Express Type B is, is physically the size because it's interchangeable with regular SDXC cards. So they'll both fit in the same slot. So the slot on the A7S III is like slightly wider than a traditional SD card slot, but it's the same depth. So these cards could be interchanged. So you can use both of them. And I think they've probably done it to actually keep the size smaller because if you tried to put dual CF Express Type B cards in there, you probably wouldn't have been able to do it because they would have taken up 
too much room. So the nice thing about being able to have these cards is you can interchange them depending on what you need. And also you can dual record. And another nice feature is that if you want to record raw externally to, a, to an Animos Ninja 5, you can do that, but also record in full quality internally at the same time to both cards if you wanted to. So in theory, you could actually have three different versions of the same clip all being recorded in very high quality. So for redundancy purposes, that's uh, that's going to suit some people's needs. Do you know if the A7S three has fixed that issue of not being able to monitor 4K on the camera's EVF as well as an external monitor at the same time? No idea, to be honest. Okay. I, ha- I haven't used or seen the camera, so I'm not sure if that if that's the case. All right, that's one of the things that I think is, you know, that's a headache for people that use it. And I'm an A7S II user. I'm shooting with it right now, and I'm always using this camera. And that's one of the things that really, really annoyed me. Another thing that was annoying was the recording limit, which is no longer. Yeah, gone is the the old 29 minutes and 59 seconds. Now you've basically got unlimited recording time. I mean, realistically, you're only limited pretty much by the battery. Uh, all modes in up until 4K 60p, I think, is unlimited recording. Once you hit, if you want to do 4K 120p recording, I think you're limited to an hour. But if you're recording an hour of 4K at 120p, <laughs> you're probably doing um, some sort of very specialized sort of type of work. And by that sort of stage, you're probably going to run out of um, battery before you have to sort of turn it off. But this is a big thing, I think, because, you know, a lot of people go, oh, you know, it doesn't matter. Who has to record for more than 29, you know, minutes, 59 seconds at one time. But a lot of people actually do. If you're doing events, you're doing corporate work, you're doing documentary, you're doing shooting a wedding or anything along those sort of lines, you do have to record sometimes continuously for a lot longer than 29 minutes. And it's annoying if you have that limitation imposed on your camera. So, this is really good to see because Sony's also saying that heat is not a problem with yeah. the A7S Mark III. We've seen the huge controversy surrounding the the, the latest um, Canon EOS R5 and R6 in terms of the heat problems that people are encountering with that. So, yeah. strangely enough, Sony's not using a fan like Panasonic has done with the with the S1H. They're using some form of new active cooling, and so they're explicitly say, stating that there's no heat problems and that the camera won't shut off or have any problems in terms of um, overheating in any type of conditions. Now, it's easy enough to say that. Whether that's actually going to be the case in reality, we'll have to see going forward. It also has a full-sized HDMI and says 16-bit raw output, which is pretty impressive. Yeah, I mean, it's a bit of a catch-22 there. Uh, firstly, with, with with the HDMI, that's that's all good. I, I applaud them for actually going with a full-size HDMI. Anyone who's used the micro or even the mini-sized um, HDMI, like what's on your um, A7S Mark II, they're horrible. They break all the time. Yes. Um, this is actually positioned in a good place on the A7S III because it's towards the front and up the top. So it's now got a fully articulating screen that flips around. But even if you flip it around, it's nowhere near the HDMI thing, so it's not going to hit the HDMI cable and it's going to remain there. Um, you said 16-bit raw out. Um, yes and no. <laughs> the thing is, it is capable of outputting 16-bit linear raw. The thing is that there is no way of recording 16-bit linear raw. No device on the market can can record that um, currently and probably won't. 
So what has to happen is you have to use an Atomos um, Ninja 5, and what will happen is that 16-bit linear raw will be converted into a 12-bit um, log signal that can then be recorded as ProRes raw. So, I mean, it's fine to say it can output 16-bit linear raw, but if there's nothing that can record 16-bit linear raw, it's not really going to make any difference. It's just a marketing sort of, um, I guess, spec. Yeah. So the Atomos Ninja 5 is supposed to be getting a firmware update in September. Um, do you know if that firmware update is also going to apply to the Shogun 7? I would imagine so. I believe that the Shogun 7 and the Ninja 5 are both capable of recording ProRes RAW from quite a few of the other cameras, including the, uh, the S1H and the Nikon Z6. So I would very much assume that that will that, probably be supported as well. I mean, don't quote me on that because I'm not 100% sure, but I would imagine it probably would. Yeah, or at least if shortly after. I mean, a lot of people have those Shogun 7s. I do. The only reason I bought it is because I really wanted the Ninja 5, but at the time, I wasn't able to get ProRes RAW from it, which was the reason that I bought the monitor in the first place. So I, I'm sure they'll be on top of that, if not in September, shortly after. Um, let's talk about the LCD. Because it can swivel now, it comes out, it turns, you can face it towards you if you're doing like a selfie mode. It's touch screen. Um, what else should we know about the LCD? Well, you pretty much described all of it right <laughs> there. But yeah, I think this is another thing that people were, were wanting. Um, you know, not everybody needs a flip out screen that flips around towards the front. Um, you know, you can love it or hate it. It really depends on the type of work, you, work you're doing. I actually just I prefer the tilt screen myself. Um, I, I'm, people are probably going to yell at me and say that's crazy, but I actually just prefer the little articulating tilt screen to the one that flops out. But for certain people, that's important, so it's nice to have it on there. Um, as you mentioned, it's touchscreen now, so you can scroll through menus and change um, various parameters on there, and you can also do touch autofocus. Mm. Um, so there's also like a like active tracking on the A7S III where you can touch on the screen and then it'll continue to track whatever object um, you've, you've, you've pressed on there. And even when you're recording, you can then go and touch another object somewhere else and it'll actually do a real-time focus pull for you. So that's, that's pretty good. Um, going back to the menu, this was something that Sony people and non-Sony people have hated forever, the Sony menu systems on some of those mirrorless cameras that are 650 pages long and it's impossible to find out how to do something. Um, that looks like it's been changed slightly. They have separate menus for video and and photography now. And in a nice little touch as well, uh, on the actual mode dial on top of the camera, they've actually put video and, the and photo right next to each other. So instead of having to move the dial all the way around, they're right next to each other. So if you're doing multimedia work and you need to change from stills to video quite quickly, it's a little thing, but that will make a, a bit of a difference. Yeah. Those, so, I mean, it seems like, you know, going back to what you said earlier, that it's this kind of a conservative upgrade considering it had so much anticipation, but it seems like they're just perfecting all the things that everybody wanted and, you know, offering up you know, certainly new options as well. Um, but I don't know. It, it's, it's one of those things where it's like, it's like the finale of Sopranos. You have so much expectation that no matter what, people are going to complain, but only after you realize that it was satisfying. <laughs> and I think I think that's kind of what this is, and I'm curious. You know, it's too soon to see what people are gonna, how people are gonna react to it because it just came out an hour ago. But I am I am interested because uh, 
especially when you're up against the other releases with Blackmagic's 12K release and um, that that canon that we're going to be talking about in a minute. It's just, it's it's going to be compared to its predecessor and also everything else coming out at the time. It's pretty, it's pretty wild. So I'm just scrolling through here. There's a couple of other things I wanted to mention. It says, best in class EVF. Is there something to talk about there? Or is that just kind of a marketing term? Again, I mean, everyone likes to talk about it has, you know, whatever this this many million dots of thing. But realistically, if you're looking in something that's like this small, you know, it doesn't matter how many dots you put in there. Once you get to a certain limit, it's still going to look good. I think from early reports from what I've um, what I've heard is that the viewing angle is really impressive mm. in that viewfinder. So you can actually see from the sides and, and see a lot of the image. I think that's probably um, its biggest selling point. Yes, it might have more dots than any other comparable viewfinder out there on the market, but whether you're really going to notice a huge difference, um, you know, who knows. And then audio. This is kind of interesting. You can four-channel recording internal when you're using that um, that adapter. Is that a new one or is that the existing one? Because I have that. Yeah, that's the existing. That's the existing okay. one that you can already you can already buy. So it, it's just I think they actually change the parameters on some of the cameras. I know with the Sony FX9, they changed it so there was a firmware update. So because it's using the MI hot shoe, they communicate with each other. So you can actually take the signals out there and there's an ability to be able to record four channels. I think the catch is you have to be using one of Sony's dual radio mic receivers, the UWP series, I think it is. There's one that's a dual receiver. So you can plug that in and plug two other channels in. And then I think you have to plug in like a 3.5 mil jack or something as well. I think that's the way you do the four channels or, or something along those lines. Okay. It's not as straightforward as it sounds with people saying. Just a moment. Oh, with people because saying just a moment. <laughs> <laughs> She's always listening. Yeah. So, yeah, I can, because that, that um, XLR KM only has two channels. So it's got to be, yeah. you got to be getting it from yeah. somewhere else. I, I, I haven't explained it very very clearly, so I apologize to all the listeners out there. But yeah, there is a bit of a catch. You, to, to record those four channels, you know, there is a couple of things that you actually obviously have to do. But the ability to be able to record four tracks of audio into a mirrorless camera is, you know, reasonably impressive. Now it says here the new recording mode is not supported by most NLEs. What what recording mode are you referring to? Just the the ability to have four channels is that. Is that what you mean by that there? And I know Eric is wrote it, this, but I'm just curious. Oh, is this related to the it, to audio? That, yeah, it says the um, the XLR KM digital audio adapter module. The new recording mode is not supported by most NLEs. So I'm wondering. Okay, that's interesting. I, I absolutely had no absolutely nothing about that. Okay. But I presume maybe because of the way it's doing it, that it's not supported yet. But I, I guess that's going to come fairly quickly. I'm not sure why it wouldn't be supported. It doesn't sort of make a lot of sense to me because it's just audio and it's not really being recorded in a different sort of way. Maybe it's the the way it has to interpret whatever's being embedded within that file and maybe the NLEs can't do that. Maybe maybe that's the reason. Why. It could be. I mean, that sounds reasonable. And this is supposed to be coming out in September and that's usually like Final Cut update time. So who knows? There could be an update with that. I mean, Final Cut was the first to support ProRes RAW and Sony was all over ProRes RAW. So there might be some, um, you know, there might be some uh, handshaking there. Um, what else is here that people are excited about? I mean, this, it, it looks 
like a really great, capable camera and a perfect update to the Sony F, um, A7S II. I mean, I'm going to be purchasing this thing because I'm a big Sony fan and I've, I've always loved the A7S II. Um, any just last takeaways from it before we move on? Well, I think the thing is here is people like to talk about cameras, but the big reason of why you actually purchase a particular camera is normally based around what lenses you've purchased. So if you've invested heavily in a particular lens system, say Sony E-mount, for example, then obviously you're probably going to go with a with something like the A7S III over, say, a Canon EOS R5. Same in, same in reverse, if you bought a lot of um, Canon EF lenses, you're unlikely to buy a Sony A7S III because you've invested all that money in the lenses. And yeah. that's the thing. Once you've got somebody hooked in a particular lens ecosystem, it's a lot easier to keep them and sell them new cameras than it is for them to actually sell up shop and then trying to move to a completely different system because it's not just the cost of the camera, it's the cost of the lenses and everything else that's associated with it. Yeah, that makes sense. That definitely makes sense. And that's, you know, this case with me, I've got a couple of E-mount lenses that I just absolutely love. And uh, I am going to be continuing with my Sony A7S series. Let's take a quick break and talk about PostLab. Now, PostLab is the software that I use to do collaboration in Final Cut Pro and Premiere. And I suggest you do too, because anybody that's out there editing, you know that collaborating with other editors is not the easiest thing in the world. And you want a, an intuitive, simple um, approach to collaboration in post-production. Now, PostLab gives you exactly that. It gives you access. So besides always saving your documents locally, it syncs all the changes across your whole team wherever they are, so you're not zipping up files and emailing it to everybody willy-nilly. No, no more of that. You also don't have any more broken files. Now, those of you guys know, two people working on the same file at the same time is an accident waiting to happen. But PostLab makes sure that doesn't happen because it one, once one person's working on a library, it locks it from everybody else. And it also keeps track of what you're doing and shows what everybody's doing. So it's such a good system. Uh, and then lastly, Time Machine 2.0. You can browse the history of each library. You can jump back and forth between versions and find that particular edit within a minute, all the way down to the blinking playhead, just like you left it. Now, if this sounds interesting to you, and I know it does, you should check it out for yourself because Go Creative Show listeners gets three months free simply by going to gocreativeshow.com forward slash postlab. This is going to change the way you edit for the better. And you can try it out for three months for free right now by going to gocreativeshow for uh, gocreativeshow.com forward slash postlab. But let's talk about the Canon EOS R6. Um, you had mentioned earlier a lot of controversy with the overheating. I don't know much about this camera, but I know there's been a lot of excitement and controversy about it. So tell us about it. Yeah, Canon released, I think it was a, was a week ago now, or maybe two weeks, I can't remember exactly, the EOS R5 and the R6. So these are two different cameras in, in, the, in, the, R, in the R series now. The R5 is a high megapixel, 45 megapixel camera. It had some eye-watering specifications, so it can record 8K 422 10-bit up to 60p internal. It can also record 8K RAW at up to 60p internally. 
as well as 4K in, I think, 120 frame, yeah, 120p. And so there's a lot of uh, nice things about it in terms of the specifications that came out. But there's a lot of um, sort of gotchas, if you will, with this sort of camera. It's almost a case of just because you can, maybe you shouldn't with the Canon EOS <laughs> yeah. R5 because releasing things like, I mean, 8K and 8K raw internal recording on a mirrorless camera are things that really not a lot of people actually need. They may think they need them, but realistically, most people are not going to use use them because the data rates are incredibly high and then the recording limitations are very short. Um, you've got limitations in terms of how long you can record in some of these modes on the cameras and Unlike the A7S III, yes, you are limited to a maximum record time of 29 minutes, 59 seconds in any mode. But as soon as you go to those 8K um, modes and 4K 120p, you're limited to a lot less recording time. And that's not necessarily anything to do with memory or anything like that. It's because of heat issues. Mm. Small mirrorless cameras that are weather sealed completely, particularly uh full frame that are trying to do 422 10-bit internal or doing raw internally generate an awful lot of heat. And there's a reason that Panasonic put a fan in the, in the Panasonic S1H. It's to get rid of that heat and to allow them to be able to run the camera continuously in these modes. So you've got this sort of catch-22 with the, with, the, with the R5 in terms of you've got these great specifications, but then you can't necessarily use them a lot of the time because of these overheating issues. And there's two different forms of being able to record 4K. You can oversample from 8K, which should give you a really good 4K image, or you can do line-skipped 4K, which isn't nearly as good quality as the oversampled 4K that's getting read from the whole 8K part of the sensor. And the problem is the 4K, even not up to 60p, so just say you're doing 4K 24p, in oversampled mode, people are having problems with it actually overheating. And so this is sort of a base type sort of specification. And yes, I can understand completely if there's limitations if you're recording 8K, particularly in a mirrorless camera. But if you're marketing it as a video sort of centric camera, which it is, and you can't record oversampled 4K without the camera overheating, there's a bit of a problem there. And there's been a lot of uproar online and just endless debate about, you know, whether it's actually a big problem or it's not a problem and people are now starting to find out that it is quite a bit of a problem and you know but this is the thing if you if you know what you're doing you buy a camera that meets your needs and you don't use a camera in a situation that's not appropriate to be used in like if you've got a camera that's going to overheat you're not going to go and try and shoot something where you need to record for a long period of time and it's not just this overheating that's the issue it's the problem is that once it does overheat you have to turn the camera off and then you have to wait a considerable amount of time before you can turn it back on again. And then if you go to record again in any of these modes that are affected, then that time gets reduced even further. Mm. So if you're using it in certain circumstances, say, for instance, if, if you took it out on one of your corporate shoots, Ben, and then you're shooting something and then the camera overheats, you can't turn around and tell the client, oh, sorry, we have to wait. 20 minutes before I can fire the camera back up to shoot. So it's a nightmare. you need to be aware of it. Yes, you can shoot in some of the other modes and, there's, and you're probably not going to get any overheating problems. But depending on what you're doing, that's going to be a potential big issue. Yeah, it's, it's curious to me why 
like, why do that? Why give somebody something that just really doesn't work that well? I don't know. It, it's it's a strange strategy. Is it kind of just like, hey, we can we can do it, and this is the first camera we're going to do it on, and just kind of see what happens? Um, are they are they presenting it as an offering that clearly isn't going to be used for sustained periods, or what is the point? Well, I think a lot of it has to do with with marketing, obviously, because specifications drive camera sales. And if you can say, oh, we're the first person to be able to do 8K in a mirrorless camera and we can record 8K raw and we can do this and we can we can do that, it garners a lot of interest and people are going to press that purchase button mm. when they go to buy, when they're looking at, a, at the camera. <sighs> Is it more of a sort of a proof of concept thing? Maybe, um, you know, it, it is strange because nobody wants to use any professional tool that has any type of limitation, you know, on there. I mean, to be fair to Canon, that it's a remarkably good camera considering what they've packed in there and, and the price and what they've been able to do. But again, you have to question as to whether have they pushed the, em the envelope too far and should have they been a little bit more conservative and, and basically sort of marketed the camera more as, here, here's a 4K camera. And here's these other modes that you can use that are almost like playing a video game and they're like a bonus level that you sort of get. But the trouble is they've pushed the whole 8K angle really hard and I think they've almost created unfair expectations for what the camera's actually sort of capable of. I mean, I, want to, I look at that camera and I tell people it's a 4K camera that can do 8K. It's not an 8K camera that can do 4K. Mm. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And that's a good way to think about it. Now, it... It came out alongside the R5. So we have the R5. R6. I'm sorry, the R6. We're, yep. We've been talking about the R5. The R6 is another um, is another option, kind of the baby brother to the R5. What are the differences? Well, this is sort of, um, it's got some of the same features in terms of um, autofocus performance and in-body image stabilization, things along those lines. It is limited, though. It does no raw capabilities, um, it can only do UHD and HD, still low up to 422 10-bit um, internally in all of those modes. And I think HD up to, I think it does HD at 120 or 240, I can't remember. It's one of those two. I mean, it's virtually sort of a bit of a dumbed-down version of the R5. In a lot of ways, it's probably going to suit a lot of people's needs, Um the only issue there is this, yes, people have also been having some issues with uh, heat limitations with that particular camera, which is also, you know, quite a worry. Mm. Uh, the other thing too is that camera only shoots the 422 10-bit in a lower bitrate codec. So the, the R5 can shoot in a higher quality codec. Um, the R6 from memory is limited to um, an IPB codec, which is a lot lower bitrate. So that's basically sort of the differences there where it's, you know, it's a, it's a lower priced version of a camera that's probably going to suit a lot more people's um, needs. Lower megapixel too. I think it's um, 20 or 22 megapixels as opposed to the 45 of the R5. Hmm. Any other features that you want to, that are worth bringing up about the R6 or the R5? You were right, it is uh, in the R6 full HD up to 120p. So you're right about that. I don't know how you remember all this stuff. And now because you're on video, you don't have the luxury of searching for things as we're talking. <laughs> like we both I used to have. I can have a look back. <laughs> I'm trying <laughs> yeah. to go from memory, yeah. Oh man, that, that the video, the Go Creative Show now being a video 
has certainly gotten in the way of me being able to search for things as I'm talking. So I have to actually be more educated as I speak instead of just looking for things and saying things along the way. (laughs) Yeah, I I have a feeling my mistake ratio is probably on a incline. Mine as well. Well, I've been checking as you go and you are are spot on and pretty much anything here that you've been talking about. But any other last things about these two Canon cameras? Um, Because I do want to move on to the Blackmagic um, Ursa Mini. Pro, uh, but just before that, just to round out Canon, anything on there that's new and interesting? Well, I think people shouldn't get too carried away, and 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 I, I know there's lot, all the controversy here surrounding the heat issues with both of these cameras, but you know the Canon really pushed the the envelope with both of these cameras in terms of features and functionality. I mean, the, the lot of world firsts in there, um, so they have to be applauded for that. Um, you know. They're late to the mirrorless game. Sony's had a big lead on them for a long time, so they've had to come out punching. So they've thrown a lot at these cameras. Yeah. Um, I think they'll still sell very well. They just need some tinkering, and I think basically they just they were maybe marketed incorrectly. I think if they had have been a bit more careful with the language they used in the way that they marketed the cameras, then I think people's expectations may have been probably a little bit lower and we wouldn't see so much backlash. Let's talk about education. All right, during this time, uh, this quarantine period, I wanted to educate myself. I wanted to get better at my craft so I can come out of quarantine better than I went in. Now, a lot of the country is opening up, production is starting again, and you still need to hone your skills. The good news is MZ has you covered. Now, MZ, M-Z-E-D, is education for creatives. And Why I love MZ is because it's hundreds of hours of high-quality video-based education that looks really good. It's well-produced work, Um, but it's covering really important topics, directing, cinematography, post-production, visual storytelling, and more. In fact, they just put out um, a color correction in DaVinci Resolve course, and Shane Hurlbert put out a course called Deadfall Script to Screen, where he takes a bunch of scenes from his film Deadfall and sort of recreates them on an indie budget, which is just such a cool idea and a great course. So with MZ, you get really high quality educators, like I mentioned, Shane Hurlbert, but we also have Vincent LaFerray, Philip Bloom, the Ari Academy is there, and so many more. So you have that, but then you also pair it with education that you need to know, editing, directing, cinematography, post-production, all that. So you put it all in one place and you have MZ. Now, if you want to become a pro member, you have access to a huge library of all their material, but you can buy individual courses if you just want a taste to start. But the best thing to do is go to gocreativeshow.com forward slash MZ and try it out for yourself. Experience the MZ way and hone your skills. Education is key and there's never been a better time. Gocreativeshow.com forward slash MZ. Let's talk about the Blackmagic Design Ursa Mini Pro 12K camera. This is a pretty wild spec here. And, you know, Blackmagic does this. They put things out, big numbers, but they seem to be able to deliver on everything they've been doing lately. It, it's it's pretty impressive. I have no information about this camera. I don't know how much you know about it. And I know it's only a week old, the announcement. Um, tell us about this camera. What should we know? This 
came out of nowhere and I think it surprised a lot of people. I think when Blackmagic said they were going to have a camera announcement, people probably just assumed it was going to be a pocket cinema camera, full frame version of the six of the six K. Yeah. And Blackmagic is very, very good at keeping things in-house and there's no leaks and information doesn't get out because nobody knew about this camera whatsoever when they suddenly started. Well, Grant Petty was doing the presentation and then he started doing resolution squares and then he kept going out and he's going, you reach 8K and you're like, what? what's going on here? And it went to 12K and I think everyone was sort of a little bit shocked. So you have to give credit to Blackmagic because they are continually innovating whether you like them or not, they have pushed the envelope even more so than Canon has done. They've been an industry disruptor, which is good because it's brought prices down and encouraged other companies to do more outlandish things, maybe even why Canon went big time with the with the R5. Mm. So 12K, do, does anybody need 12K at the moment? Absolutely not. You can't watch it anywhere. <laughs> Most people don't need 8K. A lot of people don't even need 4K. So what they've done is they've basically taken the Ursa Mini Pro G2 and it's virtually the exact same body. If you looked at them side by side, you wouldn't be able to tell the difference. And they've changed a lot of the stuff underneath the hood. And the biggest difference, and I think this is where people shouldn't get carried away and they shouldn't be looking at the 12K, the big, big news for this camera is the new sensor. Mm. So Blackmagic are now designing their own sensors. So this is huge news because previously they were outsourcing and getting their sensors from, from various places. But this is the, a sensor that's been developed in-house and it's been developed very much with Blackmagic RAW in mind. So the two go hand in hand. So they're building up an entire ecosystem Blackmagic here, which is, which is also very clever. So you've got everything going from capture to recording to post to delivery. They can do everything now because of the whole infrastructure that they have in place there. Yeah. So they've been able to build all of this in so things work seamlessly together. So most cameras these days use a traditional Bayer pattern CMOS sensor. And what Blackmagic have done is they've gone with an RGB CMOS sensor. Now, you may remember RGB back from CCD cameras. Yeah. Um, in, in the past, and, and the biggest difference is, is with a Bayer pattern sensor is that for every red and blue pixel you have, you have two corresponding green pixels. With an RGB sensor, you have equal amounts of red, green, and blue. So in theory, the color reproduction should be better with an RGB sensor. Now, the reason everybody went to Bayer pattern CMOS sensors originally is that they're a lot cheaper to produce than RGB sensors, and they are a lot better in in terms of low light performance. They're a lot better at gathering light. The trouble with the RGB sensors and what Blackmagic has had to do in here is they've had to incorporate a whole bunch of what they call W pixels. So these are basically, from my understanding, almost like luminance gathering pixels. They're not there to gather, interpret color, they just gather light. So the way they've had to do it is they've had to put these design a sensor in a certain way so they can bring it up so that it at least has the same sort of dynamic range as, say, a normal Ursa Mini Pro and also a reasonable amount of, um, you know, can, can do well in, in, in low light sort of conditions because if you didn't do that, you just went with a regular RGB um, sensor, 
you'd probably be very limited in terms of what your base ISO would be and how you could actually use it in, in low light. Yeah. I mean, cameras back in the past that used to use RGB were cameras like the Sony F35, which used an RGB single CCD stripe sensor, which works in a sort of completely different way, but the same type of, um, you know, fundamentally what Blackmagic is doing, it's a similar sort of concept there. So the, the F35, a very good color reproduction, but it was not very good in low light and the base ISO of that camera is something like 320. So this is a huge news putting this putting this um, new sensor in there and they can read it out really, really fast. And the, the great thing about it too is that they can oversample this, this sensor. So you can use the whole 12K and whether you're recording 8K, 6K, 4K, HD, it is being oversampled from 12K. So theoretically, you should get a really good um, image in there. Now, the, the caveat with the with the, this sensor and this new camera is that you can only record in Blackmagic RAW. There's no options for ProRes or anything else, mm. just because of the way it's been designed. Whether they add ProRes down the track, I'm not sure, but that's the caveat: is you have to use Blackmagic RAW. But what they've been able to do is been able to be able to record, you know, 12K Blackmagic RAW at pretty reasonable data rates, and they've added a whole bunch of new different compressions for Blackmagic RAW, depending on what your requirements are. So the other good news is too, is that you can play this back in Resolve, like 12K, no problems at all on, on most basic laptops, Mac laptops, Wow, which is, which is pretty impressive. So you can't record in anything other than Blackmagic RAW? There's no other options? No. No, it's only Blackmagic. Even in, even if you just wanted to shoot 4K, that's nope. it. It's just Blackmagic. Wow. Raw. Okay. All right. So you, so it's Blackmagic RAW, but you choose the compression in order to decide, you know, how much, yes. how much runtime you can yep. have on a card. Okay. Yep. That's interesting. And they also just to take a couple steps back about their, um, their sensor, because of the way you explained really well the, the how the sensor interp interprets color. They also have this Generation 5 color science, which is touting the, a more pleasing skin tone, better response to colors. It seems like they can now do this. They sort of created their own look in a way to pair with this new color science. Is that, am I reading that right? Yeah, I mean, color science is always a sort of an interesting piece of terminology. It doesn't really mean anything more than a way of describing sort of what your camera is trying to look like. I mean, if you're recording in RAW or, or log, yeah, and then you know it's, it's being interpreted. You can take it any direction you want. But but like the five yes. color science, like this generation five color science is basically like a film curve that they've created. But it seems like the if it was just a regular you know lookup table, who cares? You can use it on anything. But there's something about the way that this is paired with the sensor that I think is going to give it a unique look. Um, at least that's what that's what I'm hearing. That's what they're saying. Yeah, I mean, that's how most cameras are developed anyway, is that the, it's, it's a whole process of how it works in terms of it's not just the sensor, but it's the it's the image processing and then the pipeline out through the back and then how that gets interpreted and what you do with it once it reaches your your, your editing um, NLE of choice. Sure. Of course, it is Blackmagic RAW, so you are, you're going to be limited to being able to use this in Resolve and also... Um, you know, through plugins in in, in Adobe, et cetera, et cetera. You, um, obviously, you can't use this in Final Cut Pro because there's no support, but that doesn't mean you couldn't still shoot with this camera if you were an FCPX user, take it into DaVinci Roll, Resolve, convert it into um, you 
now a high flavor of ProResin exported out and then and then start your editing process. Yeah. I mean, I'm just looking at this right now. 14 stops, dynamic range, a native 800 ISO. Um, you've got 60 frames per second in 12K, 110 in 8K, and 220 in 4K. Like, th these specs are crazy. But it's not a little teeny mirrorless camera. So it can actually do these things without the overheating issues. And it definitely, you know, this is this is a... This is a camera for, it seems like they're really trying to break into the film market even more now and have, like you said, an ecosystem that you can stay in the entire time. It's a, it's a really, it's really interesting what they have been doing uh, over the past few years. It really is. Yeah. And I think the, the reason they've been able to keep the cost relatively low, being able to offer this camera at, at under $10,000 is because they've kept the existing body that they already had. It's still using CF. Um, CFast 2.0 cards, um, which is also pretty impressive that you can record, uh, you know, 12K RAW on a on a on a CFast 2.0 card. But also they've come up with these other clever solutions. So there's actually they've got a new SSD dock on the back, so you can use either SSDs or UNVME SSDs and throw one of those in a unit in the back on there oh. and record straight from the camera. Or you can just attach a, a basic, um, say, a Samsung T5 through a USB-C cable to the back and record straight to that as well. So there's a lot of thought that's gone into this camera. And I think probably the sensor would have cost them an awful lot of money. And I think with that camera, by recycling an older body and not having to change things up, um, a lot of that additional cost that you're paying has gone into the sensor development because developing your own sensor from scratch is takes a long time and it costs a lot of money. Now, there are a couple of uh, downloadable 12K clips on your website, newshooter.com, if you go and look at the, the story on the Ursa Mini 12K camera. And we'll put links to all of this stuff in the show notes, but you can test it out for yourself, download it, see how it works and resolve. It's kind of it's cool to be able to play around with that. Now, of course, everything we talk about today is in the show notes, so you guys can check it out. We do, I only have a couple of minutes left, but I want to mention the Teradek uh, firmware update for the Surf Pro, because I think that remote production is becoming a standard. I think even after COVID, we're going to be able to, uh, there's going to be an expectation that we send our monitor feeds out to clients so that they don't have to show up on set. This is a great thing for production. You don't want a million clients on set. You just don't. Let's be honest. To be able to send a monitor feed to clients, not have them there physically, is a huge benefit. And I feel like, you know, if if there's any silver line at all to COVID-19, I think it's that for production, it's putting a lot of pressure on manufacturers to have remote access and remote feeds so that we can really incorporate people that are not physically there. I love this. And the Teradex Serve Pro update, I think, is the first of hopefully many really big major updates that are going to make remote production better. And I'd love your thoughts on it. Yeah, I remember you um, sending me an email asking, hey, do you know of any solutions I need to do basically what this now does? I've been trying to do this for years. And then literally, I think within a couple of weeks, this this sort of popped up. Yeah, I've owned a Serve Pro for a lot, for a long time. And it's a, it's a great device, but there's a lot of cheaper options that have now come to market. I mean, the Serve Pro has been out for, I don't know, three or four years probably at least. Yeah. And you've got a lot of cheaper options that have come come to market in terms of a lot of the money being HDMI only though. And with a lot 
worst delay probably in the, the viewer app on um, on the on the Serve Pro that you can use with the Serve Pro is phenomenally good. Yeah, the amount of uh, tools and stuff that are in there. Just to quickly bring people up to speed, the Serve Pro allows you to send out a feed and have up to ten iOS devices seeing the feed, and the the um the um delay is very very minimal, and it's really really great. So I've been using it for a while, and I absolutely love it. But um, but it's it's always been on set. It was only it had to actually your your iOS devices had to tap into an internet that was provided by the Serve Pro itself. Uh, and that is what we're talking about has changed. That's probably a good idea to explain that. <laughs> People probably have no idea what we were talking about. So yeah, as you said, the, the firmware update came out. So now this is uh, um, available to use through Teradex Cube um, cloud service. So basically you can create an account. And I think if you're only doing very minimal stuff, I think you can actually create a free account. Mm. And then there's a couple of different options depending on how often you want to use it. So basically what you can do, as you said, is that you can then hook this straight in either via Ethernet or hook it in. I don't know if you can do it through a Wi-Fi connection. I'm not sure. But you can hook it into a main server and then you can basically send this and then someone, all they have to do is download the viewer app. And I think that's now available on um, desktop it as is. well. Yep. I think I believe. So that someone sitting remotely in, say, if you're in Boston and you, you need, you've got a client who's in Denver or whatever, you can actually they can sit there and they can log in onto the on, through the through the service, and all they need is the free viewer app, and they can see exactly what you're doing in re, in real time through your feed, and then they can also bring up all the viewer features on there in terms of being able to see time code generated there, metadata, all sorts of stuff. So they could literally sit there remotely and be logging footage or looking at it in real time, taking notes based on time code, um, whatever else is going up there, clip name, all that metadata gets put through on, onto the app. So for productions where you're at a certain level and you've got clients in different cities, it's, um, it's, you know, it's a really good feature to have. And, I, and as you said, I think we're going to see a lot more of this being needed as we move forward because COVID-19 is not going away anytime soon. Yeah. Now, the way I was using the Surf Pro up until now is basically just um, uh, I would have the Surf Pro send a feed to all the iOS devices. And I was on one of the iOS devices, I was um, sending that up to Zoom, doing a screen share. So it, it worked, but it wasn't great. And this is going to be the solution that makes it really, really good. Um, so the firmware is free. The update to the firmware is free. But like Matt said, you are going to need to invest in this uh, account with Core. And there is a basic account, but I mean, you're really going to, you're just, you're just going to burn that out quick. And I think oh, yeah, it's Core. I think I said Cube. So there you go. I'm on my mistake. My mistake level has gone up again. It, it's Core. And it's all there. We'll put the link to it in the show notes so you guys can get the, the updated information. I don't know. And you didn't either. And we'll have to figure it out at some point. Uh, if if this is done wirelessly or do you have to plug into the Ethernet? So that's that's something we'll need to to learn. And you guys, I'm sure, will figure it out as you're looking around. I apologize. We we're not armed with that information right now. But everything else is there and you can check it out. And I do think that this is hopefully going to be the beginning of manufacturers making great remote options. So of course, yes, there were other things. The Zoom H8, the spider web, <laughs> the, the spider audio device that everyone was talking about. But we are running out of time. Is there any last-minute thing you wanted to mention um, 
about, you know, our, our world today and the, the products that we're all kind of excited about, even though we've been quarantined? Oh, I think it's just, you know, it's, it's going to take a while before things, well, I don't know whether things will ever get back to normal anytime soon. So I think it's up to everybody to try and adapt and to, to, to move forward because things still need to be created. Content still needs to be made. It just has to be done in a, in a different way. And I think um, that's going to change maybe how things are done and what sort of equipment we're using. I think you're probably going to see moving forward smaller crew sizes on a lot of productions because of obviously the concerns of social distancing. And with that probably comes smaller equipment as well. So we may actually be seeing quite a bit of a change in terms of how people are doing things. And we may be seeing actually even more people doing stuff in-house rather than outsourcing it. Um, particularly um, if you are a company that was used to traveling overseas, for instance, where that's no longer really possible in a lot of cases now, is that you're going to find that people uh, are going to start employing or using people in whatever country that they need to operate because they won't be able to send their own people in. So there's going to be a bit of a change around um, happening with that sort of thing as well. Lots to come. And we know that along the way, New Shooter is going to have the latest and greatest information about all of it. So everybody should be checking it out. Newsshooter.com. Of course, Matthew Allard, ACS. Thank you so much for being on Go Creative Show. All right. I want to thank Matthew Allard, ACS, for coming on the show and sharing his knowledge, his great knowledge of all this new equipment out there. It's amazing what he's able to just keep in his mind and retain. I'm, I'm the whole time I'm looking things up and making sure my specs are right. He keeps this stuff all locked up in his head. And that's just a testament to the type of coverage that you're going to get at newshooter.com. It is the best site for all things, you know, gear and production. It really is. So check it out for yourself. And thank you, Matt, for coming on the show. Of course, I want to also thank the people behind the scenes making the show happen. We've got Matt Russell, who mixes and masters and makes the show sound so good. You can find him at GameStructure.com and on Twitter at GameStructure. Of course, you can also find our producer, Connor Crosby, at IgnitionVisuals.com and on Twitter, IgnitionVisuals. And of course, you can follow me for all things I'm doing behind the scenes at Ben Consoli across all social media. And of course, GoCreativeShow.com is the home for everything Go Creative Show. Follow us on all of our social media. Subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app. That is where you stop. I also want to thank our sponsors, MZ, Education for Creatives, and PostLab, Stress-Free Collaboration in Final Cut Pro and Premiere. Without these people, the show wouldn't exist. So please, support those that support us, and we'll see you next week on another episode of Go Creative Show, a podcast for filmmakers. Filmmakers.